Fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation 2, we're going to spend the, today on the first seven verses. We have uh, the letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and chapter 3. We'll spend the next uh, several weeks on one, hopefully one church per week. And then we'll get into the future part beginning in chapter 4, verse 22. So remember the outline of this book is already found for you in chapter 1, verse 19. If you want to know how Revelation is outlined, chapter 1 and 19 gives you the three divisions of the book. In chapter 119, John is commanded to write three things. Number one, write the things which you have seen. That's past tense, and that's the contents of chapter 1, as Chris was saying, the unveiled Christ. Secondly, John is commanded to write about the things which are, and that's what we're going to spend the next two months on. The things which are are chapters 2 and chapter 3, where the risen Christ writes letters to his churches. That's going to be the next several weeks, the things which are, that's the present. And lastly, John is commanded about to, write, to write about the things which shall take place after these things. That's the bulk of the book. That's the future bulk of the book, chapters 4 through 22. So we'll be in that hopefully until the end of the year, depending on how the Lord leads us. So in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of the church, writes seven individual letters to seven separate churches. Interesting question, why Jesus selected these churches as opposed to maybe other churches. These were uh, not small churches, they were somewhat strategic, but he could have written to Jerusalem, he could have written to the church in Antioch, could have written to the church in Rome. These seven churches, interestingly enough, when you look at Asia Minor, the western Turkey at that point in time, really were very strategic because it was where east met west. It was really where those two cultures came together at that point in time. And the dissemination of information based on trade, migration, etc., and also the gospel was very strategic in Western Turkey at that point in time. Now, when you read these seven letters, there's four levels of application I want you to think about for all seven letters. The first application is very local and it's very contemporary. Each one of these individual churches, from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea, were individual churches, local churches actual historic churches like Valley Baptist Church. They were comprised of real people. We have the archaeology on every one of their existence and location. And remember, at the beginning of every letter, it says, what? To the angel of the church in Ephesus. That's chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. So each one of these are definite individual churches and God has a message for them. Every church has its own DNA, its own blueprint that was unique to it and Jesus knows exactly what that local church needs. And so there's an actual local application to every one of these letters. So when you read this you say, okay, he was talking to that local church. That's only the first application. He was also talking to all churches throughout history. So there's a composite application. These seven churches represent the seven types of churches that have existed throughout history. What that means is you can take a look at any church throughout history as well as contemporary and you can fit them into one of these seven types or combinations of these seven types. And those churches, those seven types of churches will exist until the rapture. It says in chapter 2, verse 7, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. That means us. God has some things to say to Valley Baptist Church in chapters 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. Every church throughout history can be mapped 
or identified in terms of these seven character types, seven types of churches. It would be very thought-provoking to map Valley Baptist Church in light of Jesus' comments. What would he have to say to us if he wrote a letter to us just like he did the church at Philadelphia, Smyrna, Laodicea, etc.? I wonder what he would say. The third application is very personal. If you look in chapter 2, verse 7, the last phrase says, He who has an ear, she who has an ear, let her hear, let him hear what? What the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have at least one ear? Do you have an ear? Yes. You are commanded to what? Hear. And Scripture says hearing always is hearing with an intent to obey. So there's a personal application. There's a local church application, there's a composite church application, there's a personal application, and then the last one is very debatable, but it's utterly fascinating, and it's a prophetic application. Good scholars disagree on this, so I won't go to the mat on it, but many, many competent scholars would argue that these seven letters detail in advance the history of the church from Pentecost until the rapture. Now, for this to be true, the order of the churches listed in Revelation has to be precisely as listed. Each church seems to represent a different stage or a different era of church history. For example, Ephesus would represent the apostolic church. That occurred from Pentecost to about 100 AD. Smyrna would represent the persecuted church from 100 to about 313 AD until Constantine <laughs> really made the church and state one. Pergamos represents the imperial church from about 313 to 590 AD. Thyatira represents the age of the papacy from 590 onward. Sardis represents the church of the Reformation beginning with Martin Luther's 95 thesis in 1517. Philadelphia would represent the missionary church from 1730 and following. And Laodicea represents the apostate church. That's us. That's us. I don't think we have any clue about God's ideal for the church. If you look around in the culture today, you certainly don't see it. You have to go to the Word to find that out. But anyway, that's from about 1900 on. We're going to spend some time in that very provocative, very interesting. But if that's the case, you've got a detailed exegesis of church history for 1900 years already written in these two chapters before it showed up. Now, Every one of these seven letters follows a seven-step outline. Get your pens out because I'm going to want you to write under Ephesus. We're going to be in chapter 2, 1 to 7. Get your pen out. I want you to underline the name to the angel at the church of Ephesus. The first clue that you will have, all seven letters, he says the name of the church. Every church's name has a meaning. There's a definition of the name that is central to understanding the letter. That's just not Ephesus. The word Ephesus means darling, my beloved. Okay, That's going to be significant when we start looking at Ephesus. This is the beloved of Christ, right? So every church name means something. Second thing you're going to notice, every letter contains a title of Jesus. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lamb candlesticks, right? So there's a title of Jesus, and that title is central to the message, and it's a different title for every letter. So the aspect of Jesus that he wants to present to that church is different 
based on the message to the church. So you have the meaning of the name of the church. You have the unique title of Jesus chosen for that church. Then Jesus goes into commendation. Things that are well done. What is the church doing that they've done well? Most churches get a commendation. Some churches, the Laodicean church, the era we're in, gets zero. There's not one good thing said about that church. Zip, right? So commendation. Number four, following the commendation, we get criticism. Jesus says, here's some things that you have not done well, or you've not done at all, or you're doing things you shouldn't do. Two churches get no criticism, none, right? The persecuted church and the missionary church. We'll get to that later. We're going to spend a lot of time on that. Number five, so we have the meaning of the name of the church, the title of Jesus, the commendation, things well done, the criticism, things you haven't done well, and then there's an exhortation. Here are some specific corrections how you can fix, I Bruce wrote up here, what you're doing wrong. Here's how you can remedy the situation. The sixth item that shows up in every single letter is the promise to the overcomer. Jesus always issues a promise to the overcomer. And then lastly, the phrase will show up either at the end or second to the end in every single letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which means pay attention. Now, it's extremely important that you and I understand that Jesus evaluates his churches radically different than how human beings evaluate churches, right? We evaluate churches in America based really on only one thing. How big are they? And we assume that if the church has 25,000, man, it's really blessed of God. There are churches in this nation that have 25,000 the Holy Spirit hadn't shown up to in 15 years, right? It's a work of man. It's pretty clear. You can look at that at that point in time. So man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks where? On the heart. So these letters are from the Lord of the church. And what he's doing is giving each one of these churches a divine report card. He's given them a progress report. He says, here's my assessment of your church family, how I see it. Good, bad, and indifferent at that point. It's almost like an ultrasound technician. You know, Jesus monitors the health of his spiritual babies. And he looks inside and he sees what is. Okay, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, this letter was probably written by Jesus to the angel, and we've already talked about that last week, the Greek word for angel is angelos, which literally translates messenger, most likely means the pastor. So this letter technically is written to seven individuals, seven pastors, seven leaders of a church. We talked about last week that um, the word angel uh, or stars usually means angels, physical angels, but there's no commentary in scripture at all that angels ever lead churches. It's always human Shepherds at that point. This is probably the pastor shepherd of these little, these each local church. So Jesus is giving his assessment of each church to the leader. And I've often wondered, you're the pastor of this church. The Apostle John writes a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and you read that letter. And this is what Jesus Christ says about your church that you are pastoring, his church that you're the shepherd of. I wonder if his assessment disagrees with your assessment, right? What we do know is that if the Lord's assessment of our life differs from our assessment of our lives, whose opinion should you 
Yeah. yeah. You know the answer to that question. So, the meaning of the name of the church, that's step one. The meaning of the name of the church, Ephesus, is maiden of choice. Maiden of choice, darling, or the desired one, which is fascinating. This is not something I would have named this church. But anyway, the name Ephesus means maiden of choice, darling, or the desired one. This is a pretty clear reference to how Jesus Christ views his bride, right? His bride is what? The church. The church is the bride of Christ at that point. So his body, his church, his family. What do you know about Ephesus? Ephesus was an extraordinarily important city geographically. By AD 100, there was about 200,000 people in Ephesus. It was the chief province, the chief city of this province of Asia. It was called the Vanity Fair of Asia, right? The Roman naturalist and author Pliny called it Luminasia. Lumen meaning light, the light of Asia at that point in time. It was a very important port city. It had the best harbor in Asia Minor. All of Western Turkey up on the Aegean Sea, this had the by far the best harbor at that point. Port cities were places of migration, of people, of trade. You saw movement of goods in and out at that point in time. And there are places where culture mixed. Now, Ephesus was not on the coast. It was about three miles inland from the Aegean, situated on the Caister River. Caister River ran off the mountains at that point. Uh, they had a major problem, though. The river brought a huge amount of silt, soil, off the mountainside. It was so bad that the river was like soup. Right? I mean, it was very, very, very silt-laden. And the problem is it kept silting in the harbor. I mean, they had to keep dredging and dredging. And even in Paul's day, they had to dig a canal from the ocean to the city of Ephesus. They had a turnaround place where the ships would come, and then they'd ship it back out. If you've been to Ephesus today, you'd understand it's about six miles from the water. The harbor's been completely silted in. And that's happened centuries and centuries and centuries ago. So... It was a major trade port at that point, and there were four major roads entering the city of Ephesus, literally from all four directions. So it was the market gateway to Asia. It was also a very important political city. Ephesus was considered to be a free city. A free city under Roman rule was where, this, where the Roman government granted you the right of self-governance. Highly unusual in this era that a city would have the right of self-governance. Self-governance meant they didn't station soldiers in your town. Now, we take all that for granted, right? We assume, well, of course you have self-governance. That was pretty unusual at that point in time. They had an Ephesian Games there. The Ephesian Games almost as prestigious as the Olympic Games. So this was a very major town. They had a huge... How many of you have ever been to Ephesus on a tour or anything like that? Some of you have seen Ephesus. It's one of the most well preserved and well-reconstructed and unearthed uh, archaeological sites in the planet. If you put it on your calendar, I would encourage you to see it. It is the ruins as such are unbelievable. They had an outdoor theater that would see 20,000 people. They could do plays and pageantry. The city was largely constructed of marble. And if you see the ruins today, you would understand why people would walk in there. I mean, it, it would blind you. It was so bright. Just spectacular construction. Very important city geographically, politically, and also very important city religiously. Ephesus was the center of the worship of the Greek god Artemis, and the Roman equivalent of that was Diana. The Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was 425 feet long. That's one and a half city blocks. One building built about 350 BC, a city block and a half long. 
It was 260 feet wide, and the columns were 60 feet tall. One-piece block columns, 60 feet tall. And there were 130 columns carved out of Parmian marble. 37 were decorated with jewels and inlaid gold embedded. This was a lot of labor and a huge amount of technology. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The doors to this temple were cypress wood. It was four, how many have been to the Parthenon in Greece on the hill? This temple is four times bigger than the Parthenon. If you've ever been to the Parthenon, it's not a small place, you know. It's not a small place, four times bigger. It's, it was huge, huge at that point. It was finally destroyed by the Goths in 256 AD. But at the time of Paul's day, this temple was the centerplex of the whole city. The temple in Paul's day served as the Bank of Asia. There was millions and millions and millions of dollars held on deposit. They had a secure site inside the temple. The temple was also an art museum and a gallery. Masterpieces of Greek painters and sculptors were all inside the temple. It was a beautiful showcase. Interestingly enough, the temple also serves as an asylum for criminals. It was a dedicated safe haven where if you were a criminal, you could obtain amnesty. So it's almost like a Jewish city of refuge. If you did something wrong, you could go there and get amnesty, right? It was also a retail complex. Remember when Paul was there, the silversmiths created these little images of Diana. Guess where they sold them? In the temple. I mean, it was a huge shopping mall. Anything you wanted in the world, literally anything you wanted in the world, you could get. So in this one spot, site, you got artists, bankers, merchants, criminals, and politicians all in the same place. But I repeat myself, sorry. <laughs> You, it, it, the, the chaos, I, I want you to get a picture of this, the chaos must have been staggering, just staggering. So in this temple they had this large purple curtain and behind this purple curtain was the image of Diana. Now Diana was the, the goddess of fertility. If you've ever, we don't have the original, but if you've ever seen a, 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 a replica of this, it's really ugly. Seriously ugly. This is a big black figure, almost shaped like a cow or a buffalo. Lots of breasts. I mean, you look at the chest, and there's probably 25 breasts on this goddess. And she's got a club in one hand and a trident in the other hand. Right? And she was supposed to suckle people and nourish their spiritual life. So this was the picture that they were into. And of course, when you read Acts 19, they believe this thing fell down out of heaven. I've read some interesting commentary that says, well, there actually was a meteorite that did fall and they wound up worshiping the thing. So I, don't, I haven't verified that, but it's interesting. The worship of Diana was fairly gross, almost gross beyond description. You had scores of self-mutilated eunuchs. You had thousands of priestesses. They were all prostitutes. You had orgies, singers, musicians, dancers, heralds, mass hysteria. Their own Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, said, this is pretty damning, the morals of the temple were worse than the morals of animals, for even dogs do not mutilate each other. The people there were fit only to be drowned. That's a fairly strong statement about one of their own historians describing the contemporary scene there at that point. What is remarkable beyond description, and yet it's exactly like our God, in this dark, filthy, pagan cesspool, God plants a golden lampstand. And he calls it his bride, his church, and he's putting them in one of the darkest places on planet Earth. His darling 
right? Maiden of choice, that's Ephesus. He plants his bride in this environment. Paul founded the church in Ephesus in 52 AD, second missionary journey. And as you know, he was assisted by Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos. <clears throat> On Paul's third missionary journey between 54 and 56, he spent two and a half to three years on-site teaching in Ephesus, and the whole region became converted. And that's what led to the mob action, because when people come to Christ, they weren't buying those little silver idols, and the silversmiths are going, man, we're losing big bucks here, so we need to stop this guy because he's cutting into our profit margin at that point. So Paul spent two to three years teaching doctrine, establishing the churches, exposing false doctrine, etc. And as you know, after Paul left, his protege Timothy was bishop of the church. And after Timothy, the apostle John spent well over a decade there as the chief elder of that particular church at that point. And from Ephesus, he wrote the Gospel of John and he wrote the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So this was a church with stellar leadership. It had substantial uh, solid credentials, and it was the mother church to many, many, many churches, but that was 40 years ago. It's now about 95, 96 AD, and Jesus is going to give this church his report card, his evaluation. What's the title of Jesus, the one who's giving the report card in chapter 2, verse 1? The title of Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands says this. Now remember, Chris just read us the summary description of the risen Christ, the glorified Christ in chapter 1. The titles that are used in all seven of these letters come from that description. So this particular letter to Ephesus, Jesus is describing himself as the one who's giving you the evaluation. The one who's talking to you is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands at that point in time. What he's saying to them is, if I've got you in my right hand, I'm in control, right? If I have you in my right hand, are you safe? Are you secure? We say he's got the whole world in his hand. Are you in charge if he's got you in his right hand? No. There is a big difference between being safe and secure in the right hand of God and being in charge. Here's a paradox. When you're in the right hand of God, you are safe and secure and you are not in charge. Got it? That's the only way you'll be safe and secure. If you think safe and secure means you're in charge, that's a lie. Satan will blow that smoke in your ear every time at that point. So God is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm in charge. I've got the stars in my hand, which means I've got your pastor in my hand too. Because the stars, the angels is the pastor at that point. And he says, by the way, I'm walking among the lampstands. Last week we said, what does that mean? If he's walking among the churches, he says, I know what's going on in your church family. Right? I'm present. I'm on site in your church. It's interesting that he, this title emphasizes Jesus' hands and his feet. He's walking, right? So both his control and his presence. So this is the one who's writing this letter of assessment, one who is competent because he's on site and he's in control and now he's going to begin the assessment and he's going to start with commendation. Verse 2, I know, and he sure does know, doesn't he? You can put your name in here if you really want to scare yourself. I know your, put your name in there, your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men 
and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, had have not grown weary. Wow. That's a pretty laudatory set of credentials, right? He says, I know your deeds. This is a serving church. You might want to make a note. This was a serving church. This church had done much for the glory of God. You can measure commitment by what they did, not just by what they said, right? How many of you know there's talkers and then there's doers? One of the things I love about manna, there's a lot of doers in this class. There's a lot of doers in this class. You get up and get off your backside and get it done. And he says, you're not only doers, you're a sacrificing church. He says, I know your toil, toil. Toil literally means a beating. I'm taking a beating. I'm toiling. It means literally laboring to the point of sweaty exhaustion, right? Toil refers to intense work coupled with toil and trouble, right? So it implies not just exhaustion, but also opposition. Do you know that if you get me exhausted and hungry, I can lose all my spiritual maturity in about 15 seconds? Actually, probably less than that. Interesting. It says these people were sacrificing, and they were serving, and they were hardworking, intensely working, and they'd done it for 40 years. This was a church of workers, not shirkers. This was a church of laborers, not the lazy, right? They didn't want to be entertained. They wanted to be involved, and they were. Jesus also said, I know your perseverance. So this was not just a serving church, not just a sacrificing church. This was a very steadfast church. When they say endurance, it literally means it's hupomone, the Greek, and it means to remain under pressure. How many of you like remaining under pressure? No, when we get under pressure, we like to get out from under the pressure. Put the pressure on somebody else. This church stayed under pressure for years and years and decades. They understood that the Christian life is a marathon. And what, what can you tell me about a marathon? It's going to involve pain. Yes? It'll always involve pain. It'll involve exhaustion. It'll involve sweat. It says you stayed in the battle. You're in a pagan city. You have fierce opposition. The, the people you're ministering to in this pagan city want you dead. They want you out of there, and you remained under pressure. Acts 19 tells us that when Paul preached the gospel and people came to Christ, that it incited the mob response. Remember? They the whole city went nuts and they shouted for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it says when they got to, the, to the, the, the amphitheater, most of them didn't even know why they were there. That's a mob. A mob begins to take action, doesn't know why they're taking action, but they do it anyway. And then you pick up the, this, is, this was not a fun place. They did not, they were beating Paul's associate, tried to tear him apart. So this church was like the Easter Bunny, right? They were taking a licking and they kept on, ticking. They kept rolling at that point. So this is a lot of commendation. This is good stuff. I don't know that God could say that about us, but he's sure saying it about this church. He says, furthermore, you cannot endure evil men. So not as this just a steadfast, a sacrificing, a serving church. This is a separated church. This church was intolerant of evil. You know who else is intolerant of evil? Jesus Christ hates evil. And our culture swallows tolerance and calls it, you should be able to drink arsenic and not complain, right? Because everybody's got a right to do what they want to do. So in the name of freedom, 
You're supposed to tolerate everything. You wouldn't feed your kid arsenic in the name of tolerance. You'd say, that arsenic's going to kill my kid. Of course I'm intolerant of that arsenic. My kid's playing in the backyard. There's a rattlesnake three feet away. Well, I believe every animal's got the right of self-preservation. Not when they're next to my infant, they don't. Right? So there, there's a degree here where you have to say, this church was not popular because they wouldn't endure evil. They maintained a holy standard of belief and behavior. They knew the truth. They lived the truth. They lived a moral lifestyle. They understood that a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. A little yeast, a little evil spreads at that point in time. Jesus said, not only do you not endure it, you put to test those who call themselves apostles. See, this was a church with standards. They had spiritual discernment. Pastors would come, visiting pastors would come and want to teach. And here's why. Paul not only was a servant, he had a fair amount of authority within the church. And there were those who coveted that authority. They said, my goodness, when Paul speaks and he's an apostle, people listen to him. I mean, he's anointed. And they coveted that power. So they would come in and want to teach. And this church, and this is one of the reasons I love you guys, you have your Bibles open. You have your fingers on the page. Do you know one of the wonderful things about teaching manna is I have to teach truth because I will be corrected if I don't. Do you know how comforting that is to a teacher? To know that there are people in the class who actually are Bereans, who actually say, I don't care what you say, Brad Hannock. I want to know that it says what God says and you have your finger on the page. That is so critical. This church had their finger on the page. They knew what the word said and they had discernment. They could spot a counterfeit because they were intimately acquainted with the genuine, with the genuine. They could test the claims of teachers because they knew what the Bible said. And by the way, false teachers have always been a problem in the church because Satan will always try and lead God's people astray, right? He will always try and deceive God's people. Now, 40 years before this in Acts 20, Paul had warned the Ephesian church that false teachers were going to be a major problem. He says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. He's talking about false teachers, not sparing the flock. And here's what's terrifying. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things, trying to draw away the disciples after them. Be on the alert. It's not just the external false teachers, it's the internal false teachers. That's why we have such a passion for the word because that is the gold standard for everything. This church had maintained a biblical standard of discernment for 40 years. They'd stayed spiritually alert. Verse 3, it says, You have had perseverance, had endured for my name's sake. They'd been doing it for 40 years. 40 years. Galatians 6, 9 says, Do not grow weary in well-doing. How many of you have ever got tired of doing good? You know what can wear us out in ministry and serving? Make us weary? Criticism? Disappointment? Ingratitude? You do all this stuff for people and they think they got it coming, right? Lack of results? You're breaking your back and you don't see any results. You don't see any results. You don't see any results. And you go, God, why am I wasting my time? Come on. There's no results. Our expectations of how it should be. I thought serving you, Jesus, was going to be like this and this and this and this and this and it would be glorious and there would be lots of miracles, etc., etc. And it's just the grind. And you still deal with messy, messy, messy people. Have you ever noticed that ministry to people is messy? 
and you're ministering to people that make one stupid decision after another? Yes? And they keep making them? Yeah? Some of you are thinking, I hope he's not talking about me. <laughs> These believers were doing all the right thing. By the way, the clipboard's coming around. Please look at that and fill it out. They were doing it all for the right reason, right? What did he say? You've done it for my namesake. So their motives were even pure. So everything was going fine. And in verse 6, he gives them the last commendation. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I shall also hate. By the way, the name Nicholas comes from two Greek words, Nike. Nike means to conquer, like the shoe company, and Laos means the people. So Nicolaitan literally means one who conquers the people. One who conquers the people. And it's thought that these, these followers of Nicholas uh, began to seek uh, basically to exalt a professional church leader as opposed to the everyday church member. So it's really a clergy-laity split, and these people were the start of that. And, of course, they conquered the people by elevating the professional clergy as opposed to the everyday laity at that point in time. And that led ultimately to the false teaching that only the professional clergy could intercede with God for you, right? Very much a hierarchical system, which Jesus knows nothing of and did not teach it. So that's one view of who these Nicolaitans were. The other view is in Acts 6 5, one of the deacons, remember the seven deacons that were appointed in Acts 6 5? One of them was named Nicholas. And some early church leaders like Arrhenius claimed that this Nicholas was made a deacon, but he was a false believer and ultimately became apostate. And his followers were engaged in immorality. As a matter of fact, Clement of Alexander said, talking about the Nicolaitans, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats. You wouldn't want that on your tombstone, right? right? Maybe Hugh Hefner, but not you. Leading to a life of self-indulgence. So the church understood that this was a movement that was not from God, and they rejected it, and God commends them for it. Now, when you look at the commendation here, it's a pretty extensive list of commendations, right? You look at this church, you know, you think to yourself, I'd like to be a member of this church, right? They're hardworking. They love the Lord. They're discerning. They serve. Their motives are correct. They endure. And those pastors will love to pastor this church. But Jesus, after all that commendation, and verse 4 says, but I have this against you. How would you respond when Jesus says to your life, I have this against you, Brad Anik? That should stop your world, right? It should stop your world when Jesus says that. Now he offers this criticism, verse 4. But I have this against you that you have what? Left your first love. Jesus sees beyond all the external service, he looks into their hearts. You know what he sees? He sees that their passion has cooled off into perfunctory. He sees that their romance has deteriorated into ritual. He says, your first love, your first love. This church still loved, right? They just didn't love Jesus more than anything. They loved things more than Jesus, other things more than Jesus. They loved their service. They love their church, they love their ministry, they love the scriptures, they love their labor, they love the people, but they had forgotten the most important thing of all. What's the first and great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all. What does that mean? That rolls off our lips so easy, right? All your heart, mind, soul, and strength, etc., etc., Jesus asked Peter, 
three times. Simon, son of John, will you work for me? Simon, son of John, will you serve me? Simon, son of John, will you die for me? What do you say? Simon, son of John, do you love me? He asked him three times. How many of you have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? 25 years of marriage, Tevya asks Golda, his wife, he says, do you love me, right? And she says, I'm your wife. He says, I know. Do you love me? She says, you're a fool. He says, I know. Do you love me? Right? She says, I do all this stuff. You can't believe this stuff. I even sleep with you. I wash your clothes. I, da -da 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 -da. I milk the cow, right? He needed to know that she loved him. Yeah? Who else needs to know? Jesus needs to know. He says, do you love me? He's asking the same question of us today. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, the great love chapter says, If I have the gift of prophecies and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Nothing. See, some Christians love their spiritual gifts more than the giver of the gifts. Most people love their comfort more than they love the Son of God. Most. Here's the question. Have I left my first love, Jesus? And the corollary question is, if I have left... What am I loving more than him? You know, no one will know this except Jesus and you because you're all workers. I can look at your behavior and I can say, man, look at all the stuff they're doing. They're doing this, they're faithful, they're persevering. And Jesus said the same thing about Ephesus. They had all the external stuff. I mean, they had a spiritual resume that would knock our socks off. You just read it. It looks wonderful. It looks actually perfect, mature, solid, disciplined. And Jesus said, I know your heart and you have left. Interestingly enough, the word left here is intentional. It's not, oh, I forgot. It's they left by choice. And 40 years before that, Paul had commended this church for their love over and over and over in the Ephesian and Acts. Here's the question. What is first love? What is first love? I'll tell you. First love is fervent. First love is fervent. Some of you are going to have to go way back <clears throat> in your uh, dementia status, and I'm at that age. I'm now an elderly gentleman, I've been told by a 19-year-old. <laughs> Remember when you were dating and courting? Back in the day when you were young and naive, you were in love, right? You wrote... Letters that you hope will never see the light of day. Right? <laughs> Harry Truman burned all the letters he sent to his bride. He says, nobody historically is ever going to see those except you and me. He knew that once the, somebody got a hold of them, they'd publish them, right? 
You wrote love letters. You thought about your beloved how often? <clears throat> Day and yeah, often. That's an understatement, John. Often, yeah. Orphan? Often, yeah. Day and night. You talked with them constantly. You couldn't wait to spend time with them. You stayed up late at night talking to them on the phone, right? When you first became a Christian, <coughs> were you filled with love and gratitude because you knew that Jesus Christ had saved you from hell, saved a place for you in heaven, and you loved him? And it just spilled over. And now, all these years later, it's real easy to take Jesus for granted. You know one of the reasons why it's easy to take Jesus for granted? Because we know he will never stop loving us. The question isn't, does Jesus love you? We know that. The question is the status of our heart. Do we have that same passionate commitment we used to have? So first love is fervent. The second thing is first love is extravagant. When you're really in love, you know what you do? You're like Mary of Bethany who spent an entire year's wages on her gift for Jesus, right? And it was a great joy. Great joy. Here's the principle. You can labor without love, but you cannot love without labor. You can labor without love, but you cannot love without labor. Remember in the prodigal son, prodigal son, there's this guy called the elder brother, and he's the faithful one. Man, he never ran off and all this, all this stuff. He stayed on site, right? He served his father, but he didn't love his father. You get that impression? So he labored, but there was no love. Remember Jacob? Jacob, the supplanter, fell in love with the younger sister, Rachel. But this day, Jacob was a deceiver, and his father-in-law, Laban, deceived him. And on the wedding night, he woke up next to Leah, her older sister. Right? And then the next morning, he says, how come you lied to me? And Laban says, well, you can have Rachel, but it's just seven more years of labor. Just seven more years of labor, and you can marry the one you really love. And it says he served for seven years, and they seemed like a few days. Because he was so in love. <laughs> Right? That's what love is. Love is extravagant. Love makes you do things that rational people say, that's really stupid. <laughs> love is above rational, right? Love, it includes rational, but it's above rational. Let me give you an illustration. <clears throat> How would you like it if your spouse came to you and said, I don't love you anymore, but nothing will change? I'll still work, I'll still pay the bills, I'll still live with you, I'll sleep with you, I'll parent with you, I'll vacation with you, I'll talk with you, but I don't love you. Would that change the nature of your relationship? Really? It changes everything, right? What's Jesus' standpoint? Most of us are not going to say, Jesus, I don't love you like I used to, but I'll still come to church, I'll still sing, I'll still worship, I'll still give, I'll still serve, I'll still read your Bible. But nothing will change between us, right? Really? Really? Think about it. The divine diagnosis is you have left your first love. So what's the divine remedy? Verse 5. The divine remedy for losing your first love is three R's. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And repent. And the third word is repeat. 
do the deeds you did at first, you're all saying, coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So here's how to restore your first love. Number one, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Here's the principle. Remember what you had. I can't tell you how many times I've done marriage counseling and you have to bring people back to what they had because the present is so bad today, right? The present's filled with strife and conflict. You say, what did you have back in the day? How did you meet? How did you get married? And man, it was really good, but something happened at that point. So you got to remember what you had. When did the prodigal son remember his home? When he was feeding the pigs, right? So the first step back home is to remember home. God commanded the Israelites over and over and over again, build memorials, build memorials, build memorials, so you won't forget what God has done for you. How many have heard the old proverb, you don't know what you've got till it's gone? That's only partially true. Most of us knew what we had. It's just that we never thought we'd lose it. So we could take it for granted. And you know what happens when you take it for granted? It goes away. Right? Say yes. You know that's true. Once you remember what you had, the next step is to repent. Jesus said, remember what you had, repent. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Here's the principle. Repent of your spiritual adultery and retrace your steps. Loving somebody more than Jesus is spiritual adultery, just like it's loving somebody more than your spouse. It's adultery. Repent means to turn around. Prodigal son said, I have sinned. And what did they do then? He turned around 180 degrees and went back home. He went back home. See, this takes us admitting to Jesus that we have a hard heart, admitting to Jesus we've neglected him, admitting to Jesus that maybe our love has cooled off, admitting to Jesus that maybe there's other stuff that has captured us, captured our heart. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask him to help you love him the way he deserves to be loved. Do you think you can love Jesus all in your own strength? Do you think you need a little divine help to love him the way he needs to be loved? Yeah, he's giving you the Holy Spirit for that precise purpose. So remember, repent, and then repeat. Do the deeds you did at first. Principle's real simple. Do the deeds of love you once did. You know, when you want to rekindle romance in a relationship, what do you do? You go back and do the things you did when you were in love the first time, right? Say yes. Some of you are looking at me like, I have no clue what you're talking about, man. <laughs> You better have a clue. Don't start taking your love for granted. You go back and do the things you did when you were in love. You spend time together. You, you know, like you have a date night. Like you have a conversation without the TV on. I know that's pretty novel, but... Want to fall in love with Jesus again? Go back to read his love letter. Right? His Bible. Go back to praying. Go back to witnessing. Go back to worshiping. Go back to spending time alone with Jesus. We know this. There's nothing new here. We know this, right? You know how to be nice in your marriage or with your friends. You know how to do that. It's just a question of doing what we know to do. That's what he says. Remember, repent, repeat. Now he says, if you refuse to repent, you're going to be removed. This is the, you know, we got the carrot, now we got the pitchfork. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Whoa. Unless you repent. Here's the principle. The church that loses its love will lose its light. The church that loses its love will lose its light. By the way, that applies to you and I as individuals too. You don't love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what happens? Your light goes dim. 
your witness starts to disappear. The joy in your life starts dimming down. Your critical spirit starts surfacing, right? If they will not repent, he will extinguish their light in the city of Ephesus. Because Jesus would rather have a city in darkness than a lampstand that misrepresents them. God will not bless a disobedient church. <clears throat> if a church doesn't love him, they will not obey him. And when they disobey him, he takes his Holy Spirit away from them. You know, there may be individuals in a dead church that know and love Jesus, but the church at large is dead. You know this. All over America, there are churches that are dead men walking. They just don't know it yet. I've been in churches where I don't think the Holy Spirit has shown up in 25 years. In the church, the Holy Spirit's in individuals because I know individuals in that church that know Jesus. But in terms of power to do ministry in that church, it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. No one's come to Christ for decades. And you know what happens to those churches? They shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. When we were gifted the East Side Church, where Greg and Debbie were, you know how many members they had when they gifted it to us? Four. And two of them was the pastor and his wife. Now what does it take for you to go, maybe this ain't working, right? Down to four. We cleaned out that kitchen. I found canned soup from 1991. Hadn't been eaten. Right. So take it home and throw it on your Barbie, right? I'm just saying, folks, when the Holy Spirit decides to no longer shed light on a church because they're disobedient or they lost their first love, it dies. It dies. The Ephesian church was founded in 52 A.D. and it was dead and gone by 200 A.D. 150-year lifespan. See, we live in a church, we live in la-la land right now because we live in a church family where the Holy Spirit's blessing. That is not guaranteed forever, right? If you lose the, your love for the Lord, why would He bless disobedience? I've seen it happen over and over and over again. I came from a church that... Very, very, very small. At its peak, it had 3,500 members. They got leadership that had ego instead of servanthood. And in 15 years, they're probably down to 1,000. The light is dimming. Don't think that you can just show up here and it takes care of itself. It's got to be your heart in love with Jesus, and he'll take care of that at that point. This week, I had a light bulb in my office go out in my desk lamp. You know what I did with that burned out bulb? I threw it away with pleasure. Why would you keep a burned out light bulb in your lamp? Right? It doesn't show any light. Why would God keep blessing a church that didn't honor him and didn't love him? Right? Say yes. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, Rob put down on very front, you want to write down one thing that you're going to do as a result of that. Thank you, Rob, for posting that. This is a personal application. Everybody's got an ear, so everybody's invited to listen. And he gives you a promise at the very end, the promise of the overcomer. Dim overcomes, I will grant to you to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's been more ink spilled on who these overcomers are. Overcomers are very simply believers. Overcomers are Christians. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God 
overcomes the world. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Every believer gets the promise of what? Eternal life. Eternal life. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The original tree of life was where? The Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve forfeited governance over planet Earth when they sinned and brought sin into the human race. And Jesus has restored the tree of life in the paradise of God. And you know something? You and I will see it. It will be in paradise. It will be in heaven. You're going to see the tree of life. Right? He says, if you believe that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, died for your sins, rose, etc. Salvation. Salvation, salvation. Eternally. All right. Summary. I'm going to challenge you to spend some alone time this week. Alone and quiet time with Jesus. And ask him to do an MRI of your heart. And your question, your, your study question, your meditation question is going to be real simple. Have I left my first love? What am I loving more than Jesus right now? You can labor without love, but you cannot love without labor. If you want to restore your first love, remember what you had. Repent of your spiritual adultery and retrace your steps. Repeat the deeds of love that you once did. And the church or the individual that loses their love will lose their light. You cannot abrogate the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. Amen? When you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that is the purpose of life. There is no other purpose. It's a love relationship. The whole thing we call a Christian life, it's not working first. It's not serving first. It's not disciplining or discipling first. It's grounded. The fountain of this whole thing is love. Amen? All right. I do love you guys. I do love you guys. I love you enough to tell you the truth. Now that you know the truth, you are accountable to go before the Lord and ask him what he wants you to do with it. We need prayer.